1: Ryan Stacey and welcome to the Hockey Minds Podcast. This podcast is powered by Instat, the leader in video and data analysis. Instat Hockey supports all levels of our game worldwide with video breakdowns and or scouting services. For more information, visit Instat on the web at instatsport.com or on Twitter at Instat Hockey. Today I'm joined by Jack Hahn, former Toronto Marlies assistant coach and former Toronto Maple Leafs hockey operations assistant. Jack is a unique thinker and presenter, taking the common thought process in hockey to a whole new level. Utilizing new concepts, other sports, and more, he brings everything together in a unique and effective philosophy, which listeners can learn a lot from. Without further ado, here's Jack Hahn, former Toronto Marlies assistant coach and former Toronto Maple Leafs hockey operations assistant.
2: Today we're joined by Jack Hahn, the former Toronto Marlies assistant coach and hockey operations assistant with the Toronto Maple Leafs. Jack, thanks for joining the podcast.
0: Well, thanks Ryan for for having me. Uh, you know, we chatted a while back for my newsletter and, and now it's it's nice to do like a round two for, uh, for your platform.
2: Yeah, it kind of comes full circle and I know uh, through that experience, I was able to uh, have a lot of conversations and meet some new people. So hopefully we can kind of, uh, you know, help you in this way and and make some new connections. So let's just start off by, uh, you know, talking a little bit about yourself, including where you grew up and speak to your involvement in sports during your youth. So, uh,
0: my, so the, the short way of answering this is uh, up until uh, when I was about seven years old, I had zero involvement in sports. Like I, I was born in China and, and my family's from China and seriously, nobody else, in my family plays sports. Okay. So we moved to Montreal when I was, uh, seven years old. And then, uh, my dad's friend who, who, who lives in the city, like he had a son who was my age and was a good friend of mine and he played hockey. And, and I was like, okay, well, maybe, you know, I should give it a try. I was terrible. Okay, So for the first three years I played, I was terrible, and then I quit. So that's kind of how the first my, – my first, uh, you know, encounter with hockey or sports uh, came to pass, really.
2: Yeah. No, it's, it's always interesting in hearing those uh, – the initial experiences in sport. And some people talk about how it's hockey. Sometimes it's another sport, but it's always interesting to hear – Uh, you know, where hockey does come into play initially. So, as many people know, uh, one of your starts in hockey came from your one-minute tactic videos. Uh, Just touch on the idea behind creating those videos and then how that experience helped you down the road. So,
0: um, actually, it it would be incorrect to say that that was my start because my my start in hockey really um, came, uh, you know, several years before that. So, you know, just to kind of give you some context, so I quit hockey for, for about two or three years. So I, I, I didn't play Adam, I didn't play Pee Wee, and I didn't play first year Bantam. And then second year Bantam, uh, I started again. And, and, and that was because uh, my family lived in the U.S. for a couple of years. And then um, in the meantime, I got really fat and I became like, you know, your shape hole, like unathletic fat kid who struggled. And then, um, but then one year, my grandmother got me a copy of NHL 2002. Uh, as a birthday present and you know at that point like I wasn't really watching hockey I was I was watching the Devils on TV quite a bit because we live in New Jersey and you know obviously watching the Devils is not the most exciting thing ever but um, but I started playing the game again and I was like wow this is actually really interesting like a lot of the ideas that I have now about the game or a lot of the questions that I ask myself when I play hockey or coach hockey or watch hockey comes from you know, being a teenager and playing around in NHL 2002 and trying different things and, you know, trying to study different players or, you know, like making trades or, or uh, you know, this and that. And, and, and it always – it kind of came from there. So, you know, at some point I realized, okay, well, I actually do like hockey, so I'm going to start playing again. And then – so I, I started playing against second-year Bantam. In second-year Bantam, I um, – I switched from D to forward because my thought process was, you know, my first three years of playing hockey wasn't a lot of fun for me because I didn't have any skills and and I was playing D. Um, so then, uh, you know, playing NHL 2002, like the thing that I enjoyed doing most was scoring goals, which you know, kind of a no-brainer, right? So I'm like, okay, so w- what I'm going to do is I'm going to work on my shot for the entire summer, and then when training camp comes around, I'm going to tell the coaches that I'm a forward. And then, you know, I'm going to try my best to score some goals. And, and that's actually kind of exactly what happened. Like, I hit a growth spurt. I lost some weight. I kind of got back into some sort of shape. And then, you know, I, I was playing Bantam House League. And, I, you know, I pretty much scored maybe, you know, a point every other game, which is really respectable considering I had like one point in three seasons before that. And then the following year, I made my high school varsity team and played two years varsity and then, you know, played kind of, you Know low level junior for a year, and then I coached hockey when I was uh, studying uh, at McGill's uh, doing my BCOM over there. So that's really kind of how I got back into hockey. And then um, in 2013, I got this job as a uh, uh, digital contents coordinator for the Montreal Canadiens. So essentially, what that is is you're, you're the team's digital beat writer, and we were a group of I think six people. And I would cover home games, cover practices, occasionally fly with the team charter to away games, which is a really great experience. Um, you know, we had a nice playoff run that year. So, so you know, when, when you know, Subban and Pacioretty and, you know, Gallagher, Gauchanya, Price, like they were kind of in their best year, I would say. So that was a really interesting experience. And th- that whole year kind of taught me that, okay, well, you know, first of all, I can work in hockey as as a writer. But... I really had an interest for the, for the hockey op side of things or, you know, explaining tactics or exploring new concepts or, you know, trying to find value um, when evaluating players. And, and that's kind of what led me to then, you know, go to McGill, work for the women's team for three years. In the meantime, now we're talking about the one-minute tactics video on Twitter. So, so we're really like, it, you know, it probably took me about six years to get to, a place where I could do like 60 second video breakdowns.
2: Yeah. It's definitely one of those things that uh, takes a lot of experience and you have to watch a lot of the games, whether it's NHL 2002, which was probably the, the first one I kind of got into as well, uh, playing it on the computer at that point. But Well, um, same, yeah. 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 So that was always fun, but uh, being able to watch the Canadians and some different things like that. And I know you touched um, on writing a couple different opportunities. You were also with the athletic for a while. So, being able to do all these different experiences really ties into the ideas that were put into those one minute tactics. Um, How about we just go back a little bit onto McGill and just talk about the experience of uh, one, going to school there, and then everything you learned working with the hockey teams and just talk about the program overall.
0: So the the first part, the school side of things. So I studied um, um, BCom over there, which is a Bachelor of Commerce. And my major was marketing and I minored in political science and German language, which is a bit of an interesting mix. But the, the reason why was because initially um, I did my grade 12 in the U S my parents were in California, so I followed them there. And um, so when I got to McGill, I had to do something called the year zero because you know, the U S system is four years, the Canadian system is three years. So for people coming back from the U S like me, uh, we had to do a year, a year zero. And so in my year zero, I did a lot of German language classes just because, like, it was something that I wanted to try. And I eventually got enough credits to have it as a minor. But then the other part was political science because um, I had a lot of advanced placement credits from the U.S. And I always enjoyed the kind of, you know, like reading, you know, discussing, thinking, uh, synthesizing that aspect of political science. Because, you know, like poli sci is not a stepping stone for People working in politics necessarily, unless they're like a policy analyst, but it's more for people who want to, you know, kind of go into more of a liberal arts education, be a lawyer, or you know, be you know a writer or a journalist or whatever. Like, like that's kind of what it leads to. And I, looking back, it was really interesting because you 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 sort of see that um nothing's really black and white. Like we're talking about history and we're talking about you know. Um, different policies or, or um, wh- whether it's world conflicts or, you know, economic uh, development. And they're all things where it's, where it's like things happen. And after the fact, we find explanations for why. But really, uh, it's almost impossible to explain, you know, why is it that the Soviet Union broke apart? You know, there, there's probably 10 different reasons and, uh, you know, hundreds of different explanations. But, uh, you know, things happen. Like that that's the only kind of uh, concrete knowledge that we have. And then we can backfill with different theories or different, uh, you know, anecdotes, but, and it's the same thing in hockey. Like, you know, why does this team win? Uh, why did the blues win last year when they were last in the league at Christmas? Well, it, it just happened. You know, maybe it's because they made a coaching change. Maybe it's because they, they changed their starting goaltender. Maybe it's because tactically they, you know, they they made some um, adjustments. Maybe the players just started playing harder. Like, you know, there there's tens of theories and and hundreds of explanations, but um, things just happen. And and I think in hockey that that's always been one of my um, values in, in the sense that like, you know, I, I appreciate the 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 quantitative side of the game and using analytics to quantify the game and evaluate players and looking for opportunities, but. There, there's always going to be a, a part of the game where it's just like, you know what, like stuff's just happened. Like the puck bounces, you hit the post, the ref makes a call. Like, you know, at some point you you got to have this feeling of like surrender to like, you know, d- do what you can the best that you can. And then afterwards, you know, whatever happens happens.
2: Right? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a really good point to bring into the school part and um yeah it's really is one of those things that there's no perfect answer it's just you have to really be due diligent and, and go about um you know breaking down the process and trying to find answers that way yeah
0: uh, like, like a lot of my friends they're um you know doctors or engineers or accountants and and they look at poli-sci or liberal arts in general as just like you know it's, it's kind of hogwash right because it's, it's not it's not really scientific but so is hockey. Like, hockey is not, it's its like you, you sometimes you have to suspend your disbelief, and sometimes you, you just gotta kind of understand that, uh, you, you know, there are things beyond your grasp here.
2: Yeah, that, that's a great point to make. So, uh, you know, shortly after McGill, uh, you would enter the Toronto Maple Leafs system, working as a player development analyst and grow into other roles with the Leafs. Uh, talk about the process of how you found yourself in Toronto, and then talk about some of the key points you learned. Uh, working there as well as working with the Marlins.
0: So after my undergrad at McGill and and at that point I wasn't working with their, their hockey program yet. So, so a couple of years after that, like uh, I have been working uh, first um, with a, with like a fortune 500 company like in, in uh, sales and operations. Then I worked for a couple of startups and then eventually after my stint with the the Habs um, I thought to myself, well, if I really want to make inroads and either be a coach or an analyst, um, uh, I should probably get a job doing that at a lower level. And it just so happened at that point that the head coach of the, of the McGill women's team, Peter Smith was looking for a video coach. And I, I knew of Peter because of all his successes at the Olympics. He was an assistant with the national women's team and, and won two gold medals um, some of my classmates actually played for him when, when, I, when um, we were all in an undergrad. And, and so I went to see him and it, it was kind of really a chance encounter because I emailed him kind of out of the blue, right. It was a cold email. And then within 15 minutes uh, he replied, okay, well come, come see me tomorrow and we'll talk. Cause you know, I was looking for a team and he was looking for a guy to to do video for him. And like, he was like, like, he was so short on solutions that, is, that he was considering asking his equipment manager to do video, too, on the side, which would have been a terrible idea because those are two really time-intensive jobs. And I don't think a single person can do it without going insane at a certain point. So, uh, so for the next three years, I, I worked really closely with Peter. Like, he taught me a lot about the X and O sides of, sides of hockey, but also about, you know, leadership and being a good coach and just being a good person. And then what I was able to bring is is that uh, the analytics side of things, you know, I set up, you know, stats, um, uh, you know, I track micro stats, I set up reports. And for me, the most important thing also was just, you know, in years two and three, I was able to start a process where, you know, we we all were always recruiting new students to come into the program and work on the hockey ops side of things. So now, you know, after I've left, there's been, uh, you know, three, um, undergrad students who've kind of taken over my job and then they're looking for the next generation, you know, so number four and five and, and beyond, which is really cool. And, you know, one of the things I really want to talk about is the importance of, of mentors, right? So I would say, you know, Peter has been a very important mentor for me, but on the flip side, if you look at it, there's also anti-mentors. So people that you know, or people that you work with, or people that, you know, you encounter in in, in various stages of life where it's like, their value to you is showing you what you don't want to do or who you don't want to be or, um, you know, what path maybe isn't the best for you. Like the, the the thing that actually led me to meeting Peter and working with him and, and learning all these things and eventually working pro hockey uh, on the operations side is, you know, I had a, a manager with the Canadians who I really, you know, I, I just didn't see eye to eye with, you know, like I was trying to add, kind of tactical elements or analytical elements or more in-depth analysis to my articles. And, and he was like, well, you know, I don't think fans are interested in this. I like, you know, first of all, you know, our, our readers just want to know what happened in the game and leave it at that. And second of all, like, you know, you're not a coach. You're not an analyst. Like, who are you to, to talk about these things? So, like, that was something I really took to heart because, first of all, you know, there was a reaction. of like, okay, well, I'm going to show you. And second of all, it's like, you know, when you think about on the flip side, it's like, yeah, like he, he totally has a point because, uh, you know, I don't have those experiences yet and I, and I don't have those, um, you know, qualifications yet. So, so, so that was a really big driving force for me to, you know, go to work in U sports women's hockey with, you know, a mentor and then, um, and then really develop that side of my, my skill set. So, you know, on the one hand, you know, he's, he he was kind of a prick, but on the other other side, I think maybe unintentionally, he was actually one of the the big, uh, uh, it was a big turning point in my life.
2: Yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, like, again, you take away those, uh, the key experiences uh, and you meet those people, the mentors, anti-mentors, and it helps you at a later date. Um, so in the Toronto Maple Leaf system, one position I really wanted to talk about specifically is your time with the Marlies as an assistant coach. Uh, you know, being a pretty prominent role at that point in time, uh, what were some of the main takeaways that you had in that experience uh, working with the Marlies, uh, you know, there for a couple of seasons as an assistant coach?
0: So just, just to continue on the theme of anti-mentors, like it, it's not necessarily someone that you dislike as a person. Or you know, it doesn't even have to be someone whose values you're you're kind of you know in disagreement with. But it's just if you separate the people from the problem, it's just that allows you to learn even from people that you like or respect. You know, you look at certain ways that they do things, and you're like, well, I'm gonna I think this is a good idea, and I'm, i I'm gonna embrace this, and I'm gonna take this and use it elsewhere. And there are other things that are like, well. Um, you know, I don't think it's the best thing to do. So I'm just going to learn from this, this problem and apply it to my future actions. And and I think the big takeaway for me, uh, for for me, from from the season, from the season working as an assistant coach um, at the AHL level is that um, the, the difficult thing with coaching in pro hockey is that you have so much on your plate and it's difficult to prioritize, right? Because, you know if you're a minor hockey coach or if you're even if you're a junior coach um, there are people who don't necessarily put in a lot of hours and you know get by right uh, but at the pro level the the work ethic or the time commitment side of things like it stops being a competitive advantage because everyone is putting in the hours and everyone has access to certain resources both in terms of manpower or in terms of material right so then so then it's kind of interesting because when you move from, let's say junior pro or college pro, or, you know, when you make that jump, you almost have to kind of flip your thinking upside down in the sense that like, instead of saying, well, what can I do more? Or what can I add the, the focus should first be on what can I do less of and what can I take away? Because, you know, once you, once you do that, once you kind of subtract, then you can go back and add things. So as an example, um, uh, you know, a common kind of pitfall for for coaches of all levels, and I'm thinking, is um, they spend too much time worrying about the static parts of the game. So whether it's face-offs or D-zone coverage or neutral zone forecheck, you know, those are all things that a lot of coaches or, you know, power play setups, PK setups, right? Like I think a lot of coaches spend a disproportionate amount of time Worrying about those areas because they're easily controllable, right? Because you're just, you're basically telling players to stand in a certain spot, and I think coaches gravitate toward those things because it gives them a feel of control over the game and a feel of competence, you know, in the game. But that that may may not necessarily be what the issue is, right? So if you have a team that has trouble on the power play, and I'll give you an example: the Montreal Canadiens, you know, consistently. Have been a very good five-on-five team at creating offense, but on, on the power play, it just hasn't happened for them, right? And you can say, well, is it because they're playing, you know, Shea Weber at the point or on the left flank? or you know, are they playing Kaken, Yemi, and Suzuki on their strong sides or on their weak sides, or you know, are they, you know, having somebody net front um, versus having somebody, you know, at the strong post? Like those are all kind of structural details that are important, sure, but are not central to the issue. Right. So if you read, if you read about, you know, if you read in my newsletter or my book, Hockey Tactics 2020, which I'm sure we'll get to in in a bit, like for for me, the the problem with a a team such as the Canadians, right. It's, is that um, their players don't necessarily have the technical details in their game to, you know, game the zone with control and then get off the wall, right. And protect the puck and then make a follow-up play. So, it's not a structural thing. It's something that's kind of beyond that. Yeah. And I think a lot of coaches, they get stuck on the structural side of the game or the very kind of um, the pattern based part of the game. And, you know, there's only 24 hours in a day. So then they don't have enough time or energy to get to the kind of the the second level thinking that maybe is required to address some of their problems.
2: Yeah, for sure. Uh, A number of great points made there and a lot of tactical talk. And, talk about that second level thinking that's something that we see a lot in your recent projects the hockey tactics 2020 book your hockey tactics newsletter and your upcoming book which references the connection between hockey tactics and ea sports nhl series among other things Uh, walk us through the idea behind all three of these and the experience of putting out all this content you know during the covid break
0: well i mean i it kind of It's like the one minute tactics or my, my Twitter feed. It's, it's years in the making. Right. So, so it's almost like, you know, the NHL video game series got me back into the sport. And now for me, the, the the best mental model to understand the sport is through, you know, what happens in the game. Right. And, um, and, and for me, it's very important to kind of think beyond what's immediately obvious. Because as I said, like at the top level, everybody's super prepared. Everybody's smart. Everybody, um, you know, puts in time and effort. So then the way to create a sustainable competitive advantage is to think at a deeper level than the people that you're competing against. So you could be thinking, you can be working very hard and thinking very you know, um, deeply about things without actually thinking about kind of, you know, the second order effects or cause and effect or, you know the 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 term that i use is is a gambit right so a gambit is is a is a chess move or a series of chess moves that establishes a certain pattern in in the game so then you have the gambit that a player runs and then his opponent recognizes the gambit and runs a counterplay and then the first player recognizes the counterplay and then runs a meta play right and and really that's kind of how it works now like if you think about a two-on-one right if whether you're the goalie, whether you're the defenseman, whether you're the puck carrier, whether you're the player without the puck, everybody's running these primary plays and then their opponents try to neutralize these primary plays. So ultimately what what ends up happening is that the winner of that encounter is the player with um, the better secondary play. So as a puck carrier, you're faking a short side shot and then you're slipping the puck under a D-man stick to the open net, right? As a D-man, maybe you're faking going toward the puck carrier and then taking away the pass in the last second, right? As the goalie, maybe you're moving a little bit early because you know that this guy's going to pass or conversely, maybe you're just standing your ground because you know that this guy's always going to shoot. So it's whoever has a more established secondary play. That's really going to thrive at the higher levels of competition. Yeah. Once the idea of execution is kind of off the table because everybody can execute.
2: Yeah, exactly. And you know, there's so many great takeaways from the, from the writing and even the conversation that we see on Twitter, that just comes from it, and I'm sure uh, even more conversation has gone on behind the scenes uh, with you and, and people are having different takeaways from reading the the content. Uh, you know, one of the topics that uh, you know that comes up a lot is how you heavily invest your time into new ways in coaching and scouting at uh, different levels. Talk briefly on the topic and touch on some ways that you feel, you know, this advanced coaching or advanced methods can be utilized at various levels.
0: Well, I I mean, it it all goes back to the idea that you want to think about things at a second level because like, that's how you get ahead. And and that's, you know, that's what life is, right? Like it, um, it, I like to use a lot of business examples and one of them is uh, a startup, right? So if you're running a startup, is it more important to run the startup well or to pick a profitable industry? And, you know, past history shows that it's way better to be an average company in a, in a profit making industry than a great company in a profit losing industry. Right? So it's like, um, so my girlfriend's a flight attendant and, um, I've always been interested in aviation and, and as an example, I think uh, Air New Zealand is one of the best run companies and uh, airlines in the world in terms of, in terms of profitability, and they're still losing money every year. Whereas, you know, a very, an average to below average uh, uh, aircraft parts supplier makes millions of dollars every year. Right. So it's always about, you know, kind of finding, I would say open ice, right. Where your opponents aren't or your opponents aren't thinking about, and that's where you can, you know, get a puck, where you can, you know, create a speed differential, or you can, you know, attack the net or find the middle. Like, like it's all about finding open ice, right? Like, if we we know that if the pile there's a pile of players in the corner, well, adding you know a fifth or a sixth body into that pile is not going to do anything. But if you just stand next to the pile, sometimes the the, the puck pops pops out to you, and then you you have a one on one with the goalie, right? So it's all always about finding the, the space that will
2: allow you to make the next play. Yeah. It really is just a constant, you know, mental battle almost trying to find those loopholes and find ways to better yourself and set yourself up for better opportunities. Cycling back to an earlier experience uh, with the Leafs, I read somewhere that you mentioned your ability to work with video as a strength, which helped you land the position. Talk about how you went about learning this skill in particular, and then talk talk about some other skills that maybe helped you out in the early stages.
0: So, so here's an anecdote that maybe I I haven't told that that many people. But um, so when when I was at McGill between uh, 2014 and 2017, we used Steva, right? Steva is a pretty, it's a good software. Like it's been around for a long time, and it's 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 a pretty old software. And um, it's actually it's really good, I would say, for minor hockey or for for uh, teams that don't play a lot of games. Like you know, we played about 40 games a season uh, at the university level, and, and that was good enough for us. And we also had only uh, one video laptop for the entire coaching staff, but uh, the the gold standard for a pro um, uh, the pro setting is uh, XOS Thunder Hockey, and the advantage of that is like it, it, the the back end of that software is so much more robust. It can handle, you know, games of, you know, seasons of 80 games or, you know, with playoffs, it's a hundred games. You can you can have multiple coaches working on the playlist at the same time uh, via the server and stuff like that. And, um, you know, the think, thinking ahead of where I wanted to be like around 2016, I thought, you know, like I'm going to my third at McGill. I've done pretty much everything that I, I needed to do at this level. so. So you know what 's next? It could be Minor Pro, could be the NHL, could be maybe a, a bigger junior program, and the commonality between uh, all of these programs is uh, the vast majority of them run on XOS. so I thought to myself, well, you know I, I should probably invest in myself to, to get ahead of the competition. So what I did was I called up uh, XOS and I actually ordered a personal license of that software and the laptop that goes with it so what happened the next year is I kind of learned the ins and outs of the program. And, you know, I got comfortable making playlists or cutting film or uh, integrating kind of micro stats tracking into the software. And then um, uh, the opportunity with the Leafs came around. And I guess one of, you know, one of if not the biggest thing that kind of set me apart from other candidates, which I literally found out included Rachel Dory, who was a friend of mine, is that Rachel also, she was really good on Steva, but she had never used XOS Thunder. Whereas, you know, I had a year of experience just, uh, tinkering and and working on it myself. And what Rachel later told me was, um, was that the answer that she got is that because she didn't have this experience, uh, they didn't feel as comfortable going with her as the candidate. So ultimately, like, you know, I, I couldn't have known that a year ahead of time, but that was the difference that got me the job.
2: Yeah, that's, that's amazing story. And, uh, Rachel's actually going to be a guest on our podcast as well, so Uh, an interesting, don't rub it into us. No, no, for sure. No, I think Rachel, uh, Rachel is very good at what she does and, you know, she's been successful as well. So it's, it's interesting to hear an overlap there as well. But, um, yeah, it's definitely one of those things and Exos, um, you know, there's a financial cost, but if you're willing to invest in yourself and, and do it for the right reasons, there's obviously a lot of, uh, you know, a really good takeaway that you can get from that as well. So through your work, another interesting takeaway is the connection between hockey and other sports that you reference often. Uh, one of the sports that you talk about very often is tennis. Talk about that connection and then how others can utilize various sports to further their abilities in hockey.
0: Well, I talk about tennis cause like that's something I know really well. Right. So um, what, what happened when I was younger was um, my parents didn't necessarily invest a whole lot of money into, into my sports. They They did a fair amount, but, uh, you know, it's more like, you know, hundreds of dollars versus thousands of dollars. Right. And, and one thing that, that, um, um, resulted from that was I always played tennis in the summer and hockey in the winter because, you know, summer hockey is, is expensive. And then winter tennis is also expensive. Whereas, you know, summer tennis, I can be out there with my friends for hours on end on public courts and, you know, it'd be free. And then winter hockey, obviously, I could play outside. I could play for my school. I could play for my house league. So, you know, I was always about roughly as good at tennis as I was at hockey growing up. And you know, it being a very different sport, you know, it's individual. There's no contact. There's a net separating you and your opponent. It's in a sense, it's way more mental because you can't you can't pass the ball. You got to hit it right. But um, it, it allowed me to kind of experience and see a lot of different things and. Um, that added kind of a whole layer of understanding to my hockey as well.
2: Yeah, it was one of those points I really wanted to bring up and and hear your point on that as well, just because, you know, there are so many different takeaways. We've had guests on the podcast and there'll be future guests who talk about, you know, baseball and and alpine skiing and all these different things that, uh, you know, there's takeaways that lead into sport. And it's just another um, interesting outlet for the game as well. So go ahead.
0: Yeah, like and I would say if if I had to pick one major takeaway uh from tennis is that is that the the relationship between effort and results is not uh is not direct, right? You yeah. you can't draw a straight line and say well this player is doing better because he's trying harder. Uh you know, actually, I actually, I have some friends who play pro tennis and I, and I've actually covered pro tennis uh, extensively over the years. And, you know, everybody works hard, right? Like if you go into the top, let's say 1,000 players in the world, everybody works hard. And if you watch a top 100 player practice with a top five player, they don't look all that different. So what is it that makes it so that the top five guy makes $5 million a year and the top 100 guy makes you know, I would say, you know, fifty thousand a year or a hundred thousand Yeah. It's not the effort and it's not necessarily the technique. And it's not necessarily how hard you hit the ball or how fast you run. Or it's it, it it's something else, right? So so that something else has always fascinated me and, and that something else is kind of what you know my hockey research or my hockey work has kind of tried to uncover.
2: Yeah, for sure. And I think when people read that type of content and have those ideas, there's even more areas, even outside of sport, that they can have takeaways that bring back into the game. So aside from your own work and then your personal network, what are some other, you know, maybe public resources that you utilize to further your own knowledge, whether it be books, podcasts, articles, etc.
0: Um well first purely in the hockey side, like I I probably subscribe to a good number of those uh public analytic databases, whether it's uh Uh, Micah's HockeyViz.com or EvolvingHockey.com or, you know, I've been working recently uh, closely with uh, Corey Schneider of Shutdown Line. And I think they they just give you such a good perspective because you can say that this player is good or this player is bad based on something that you see in their game. But then, you know, at a glance, you can consult those resources and know where they stand versus their peers. Right. So if, you know, we, we look at Mark Stone, right, very clunky skater, right? not, not the best shooter, like kind of a weird way of carrying the puck, but then one of the most effective players in the NHL. Why? Right. Ryan O'Reilly, you know, ugly skater, super effective player. Why? Um, on the flip side, you know, Max Domi, one of the most dynamic offensive players in the league, uh, very underwhelming defensive impacts. Why? So I think those are really good starting points because it gives you an apples to apples comparison to other players in their situation. And, you know, I think any kind of analysis has the, the you know, there's a danger of coming to wrong conclusions if you don't start with those kind of basic, um, the high level impacts, right?
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, there's so many great resources out there. And I, you touched on a few there that, Uh, You know, if you look on Twitter, you can see all these different people are doing amazing work with analytics and and other different things like that. So uh, really great resources to bring up there. Uh, You've mentioned a few different people throughout the interview, but reflecting on your career to date, who are some of the key mentors who have helped you get to where you are today? And then aside from what you've already talked about, what are some of the other other, uh, major lessons that you've learned through those interactions and just working in general?
0: Well, I mean, you know, anyone's... First and most important mentors are our family members, right? So, so, so I mentioned off the top that nobody in my family played sports. Um, there, there's a lot of teachers and you know writers and you know intellectuals in my family. My my grandfather taught uh, um, literature for I would say 40 years. You know he he um, he worked at a public school in China, and he was someone who really imparted the importance of. You know, being well read and writing and having, you know, thoughts on different things and, um, you know, being just just the thoughtful person in general. And like I spent a lot of time at his house growing up and he didn't have any toys. You know, we were before the era of video games. He never played soccer or played catch with me. And so he would just sit and read and I would sit and read. And, you know, he taught fifth grade. So at a, when I was four years old, I was reading at a fifth grade level because that was the only thing that he, that he had. Right? <laughs> I was looking at the pictures and trying to figure out what the words meant. But, but that really gave me a head start on, you know, the, the linguistic side of things and um, um, yeah. And, and just being ahead of my peers in terms of, you know, the, my, my, my thought process and then the second most important mentor and I would even say he's an anti-mentor in many ways is my dad because, um, you know, he, he's very traditional in the sense that for, you know, for, for him, success in life is having a nine to five job and having, you know, a good salary and a pension and stable working conditions. And, um, you know, he had that in the first part of his career and not so much in the second part of his career. And, and, and I think that was a really, it's a good cautionary tale for me to, you know, make bets on myself and to do your own thing and to always look for ways that you can gain equity into your work. Right. And, you know, he, on balance, he's been, he's a very successful person. You know, he went from China to uh, studying in Japan to, you know, working in Singapore and Hong Kong. And now he's in California with my mom, to have a house, Um, you know, and, and, but, but, but even then it's, I always felt like I, I didn't want to be like him, in certain important ways, even though, you know, I love him very much and we have a great relationship, but it's just, um, you know, he's been a really good anti-mentor for me in that way.
2: Yeah. That's an interesting way to put it. And like you said, such a great connection and so many learning points, but uh, you know, ways for you to see, uh, you know, potential, uh, you know, different routes that you can take and ways that you can be successful uh, from his different experiences. Uh, as a final question, as I ask everyone on the podcast, if you could go back uh and talk to yourself or maybe someone who's in a similar position as you heading into university or somewhere around that age what is one piece of advice that you would give them to help them progress in hockey operations and life in general
0: so I think the best single piece of advice uh, I received I think it happened was maybe I was around 20 or 21 years old and I was at this conference and there is a marketer by the name of Mitch Joel who was presenting and and I got to ask him a question at the end, tail end. And it was, it was something along those lines, right? Like what, what's a thing that you think will lead to success or what's, what's something that, you know, a young person should know. And he's, and he he just simply said, do things which are awesome to you. Right. So there's a few things to unpack, right? So first of all, it's do things. So for me, whether, whether I'm writing, whether I'm, you know, um, Running a book, or a, or a newsletter, or on my Twitter feed—like, it's just—it's the importance of putting out a volume of work. You know, in hockey, we we understand that shot volume is ultimately what drives results, and the players who drive exit volumes and entry volumes and shot volumes, despite not looking always very pretty, they're the players that you want to have. So it's just about putting out a volume of work that you know it doesn't have to be always pretty, because as long as it's out there, then you can get feedback, you can improve over time. Uh, Second is do things which are awesome, right? So um, for many years, I I did things which I thought was not so awesome. And that frustration or that dissatisfaction probably is is the most important emotion for me in terms of uh, evolving and doing better work and and moving up. So it's very important to kind of understand what you think is awesome, you know, regardless of what other people think is awesome. and, And, you know, always keep sight of that. And, uh, the, the third part is to you. Like for me, what, when I write, um, in my newsletter or in, in the books that, I, that I'm working on, my target audience is one person and that's me at age 13. So on the one hand, I want to make the concepts, um, uh, kind of, uh, you know, simple or understandable enough for a smart teenager or even, you know, a smart elementary. School student, uh, but on the other hand, I I, I really there to be a depth of thinking and, and some sort of something new, right? Because um, I I read every single hockey book that I put my hands on uh, that I could get my hands on when, when I was younger, and looking back, like I was just dissatisfied with a lot. Like I just thought there was more to the game. You know, why is it that you know Steve Schott scored sixty goals one year and then never scored more than forty five goals? I've never seen anybody try to explain that. Well, we know that it's probably mostly variants, right? That the year he scored 60, he probably expect, had only maybe 40 expected goals or whatever. And that it was just, he was a good player, but he wasn't a 60 goal a year player. Right? But you know, that concept wasn't explained to me until about a decade later. So for me, it's, it's always about kind of going deeper and, and, trying to understand the game better and writing for a very specific person, which is, which is me, right? Like I, I wish I had this information when I was six or eight or 10 or 12 or 18. And I would probably be both a better hockey player, a better hockey coach. And, it's just a more enlightened person in general. So it's, 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 it's too late for me, but it's not too late for literally everybody else. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's a great a great way to put it. And I think that's a tremendous uh, piece of advice and, you know, a perfect way to end off the interview. Jack, I just want to thank you for taking some time today uh, out of your schedule to talk with me about hockey and your career in general. And, uh, you know, I wish you all the best moving forward. Thanks, man. All right. Take care.
1: All right. Take care. Bye-bye. I'd like to thank Jack for joining me on the podcast and going in depth on his thought process and career overall. As always, the amount of detail in which he presents is outstanding, and along with listeners, I was able to learn a lot throughout the conversation, so once again, I'd like to thank him for sharing. If you would like to get in touch with Jack to discuss his experiences, I encourage you to reach out to him directly or contact Podcast at Outlook.com, and I can look to make that connection for you. Additionally, for those who are interested in reading some of Jack's work, you can use our promo code RYAN20 for 20% off, so be sure to take advantage of that offer in the immediate future. On the next episode of the podcast, I'll be joined by not one, but four guests in our first episode of the Roundtable series. Looking into the topic of video coaching, I'll be joined by former guests Ian Beckenstein and Jordan Hunter, in addition to upcoming guests Alex Matheson and Emily Natsky. There's a lot of opinions and experienced insight packed into this one episode, so stay tuned for that release on Sunday. Once again, I'd like to thank everyone for the support throughout this journey and for the increased interaction as of late on all of our platforms. As always, stay safe and all the best.